e-fuels, which arguably is cleaner than most electric vehicles today, looking at the energy footprint that we have today. So it's certainly a very interesting topic. My guess is it's a complementary technology. So we're going to see EVs and e-fuels-based cars. Um, and one of the reasons is, uh, just like speaking from the industry, how they're thinking about it, if you have a really, really large fleet and you want to decarbonize, let's say you have trucks, um, going all electric is very, very expensive because an electric truck or an electric bus is very expensive to buy. An electric transit bus costs about a million dollars, just under a million dollars, right? So if you want to transition your entire fleet to electric, huge amount of CapEx investment at the promise of lower OPEX operating expenses because you have to pay less for fuel and less for, for energy and spare parts. Now, e-fuels is the exact opposite. You don't have to buy any new vehicle. You can just use your current one, but later on your operating expenses are going to be a little higher because your, your fuel is going to be a little bit more, a bit more expensive. So if you are the CFO of a large fleet, you will say, well, I'm going to have a mix of both. I'm going to have some EVs and some that still run on ICE, ICE engines, but with e-fuels. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you and I do this for a living. And what I keep thinking about again and again is my parents live in India, and they still have four hours of rolling blackouts in the summer. I don't know how long it takes for them to get proper EV charging infrastructure. And the HIF Chile plant right now got a $100 million investment from Porsche uh, because Porsche still has 70% of their original 911s ever sold still on the road. They're not going to be able to transition it out in the next seven years. And I hope that stays that way. I mean, the beautiful <laughs> cars. Um, and so this HIF plant in Chile is supposed to be making 14.5 million gallons by the end of 2024 and 145 million gallons by the end of 2026, With 12, and 12 such plants are supposed to come online. Aramco, who's working with Formula One on developing this, has one plant coming up in Saudi Arabia and in Bilbao, Spain, which is going to be operational again by 2024 or six, one of the two years. Um, and oh, actually, no, 2023. So I think that's. I thought there'd be more debate about this, but both of you agree. Uh, <laughs> no, I think we should, you know, ask Pilar. <laughs> Not about this, but you know. Well, I think. Um, I'm probably representative of a lot of new F1 fans, right? And yeah. one of the things that I've become passionate about as I learn about advancements in F1 technology exactly. is how do we get the layperson to understand it, exactly. right? I think as long as you need a PhD in engineering to really wrap your head around it, it just feels so conceptual and far away, right? So that's one of the things that I spend a lot of my time thinking about as we're standing up an event. Um, how do we tell the story back to the city Right, of how advancements in F1 technology long-term will ultimately be good for us. So uh, on that line, like, yeah. what, how are you telling the story to the layperson F1 fan about something that F1 is doing, which is the sustainable fuel investing in it? How is it that you're thinking about positioning it to the Vegas fan base? Yeah, I can, I can definitely talk a little bit about that. Um, by show of hands, how many folks here have been to Vegas in the last 10 years? A few, okay, awesome. Um, so Which, we've got a really- What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, stays right? That's just a side comment. Um, what we're what we're doing is is pulling together a really unique event. Um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you kind of a few things that make it special. Um, but to answer your question, Abby, about how we talk about advancements in F1 technology, it's really been about localizing it for what matters most to us in Vegas. So Las Vegas is our new desert home, right? And we're living in a water crisis. And so for us, the fuel story is important, but what matters most to my neighbor is that we're developing a long-term plan for water conservation, right? And ultimately, if we can conserve water effectively and efficiently, it does reduce the size of our carbon footprint eventually. Um, but it's really been about taking the global F1 sustainability strategy off the shelf and then making it fit the local context for where we are in the desert. That makes a lot of sense. And I think if we're talking about sustainability, we're jumping ahead to it. But let's talk about this a little bit. F1 is talking about going to net zero sure. uh, by 2030. Mm -hmm. Everybody, most of the companies have put that target out. It's not just F1 saying yeah. it. And F1 today is traveling 84,000 miles yeah. in 2023 among the 23 races. 
And 72% of the entire carbon footprint actually comes from the travel and not the cars. It's 45% is logistics, which is transport. And 27% is just business travel. So 70% is just like people traveling. And I'm sure there's going to be a huge part of that in Vegas as well. So how are you telling that story? Um, I actually have a visual. Maria, do you want to just skip the video? But I want to say it's like slide 10, roughly. Um, It'll kind of help for folks who haven't seen it before. Um, And maybe we drop the lights a little bit. I know I'm going full Beyonce, but stay with me. (laughs) Okay, that's the one. You can go back. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. So um, I'm just going to stand. Um, this, is the, this is the circuit outline for the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Um, this long straight here down at the bottom is the Las Vegas Strip. Um, that curve up around the top turns one, two, three, four. All of that is where we're building a 280,000 square foot paddock structure, which will be the heartbeat of our event. Um, let's see, racing will happen down that second shorter straight in the back and then around that big thing, that square, that, or sorry, that sphere, um, which MSG is building and we're told it'll be ready by this November. Um, and then down and around Venetian, back down the strip um, with a pretty special finishing moment in front of the Bellagio Fountains. Um, so it is a logistical nightmare. It is just as tricky as you think it is. Um, The render is lit this way because we are a night race. So on top of uh, all of the challenges that will come with standing up a safe racetrack, um, we're also starting our event at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. Right? Um, You might be wondering, how does traffic move if the entirety of Las Vegas' hospitality district is within our circuit? That's a great question. We don't have an answer for it yet. But... (laughs) But... But what we promised the city that we would do um, is uh, for the 10 o'clock start on the Saturday night when the race begins, um, we will not close down any of the street, any of the circuit, until 7 p.m. that same night. And so we have about two hours and 40 minutes to stand up the event, right? Racing starts at 10 p.m., and then by 1 a.m., they will start to open up the streets again to public traffic and we'll do that all three nights of race weekend. Um, so there's a lot, right, when it comes to logistics. And I think for folks who look at the F1 calendar globally and think, well, wouldn't it be nice to just rearrange it all so that Austin and Miami and Canada and Mexico, they all happen around the same time. But it's really not that straightforward, right? And from where I sit in the promoter seat, the very best thing that I can do, the best story that I can tell is, what we're doing on the ground in Vegas, right, to make sure that we're hitting our targets. We have the benefit of being within about a mile and a half of the airport. That's, that's pretty cool, right? Cuts down a lot on transit from airport to, to track. Uh, I mentioned I went to Silverstone last summer. Um, I want to say I spent two hours in the car each way getting in and out yeah. from Silverstone. That was just me, right? And multiply that by however many cars, however many trucks with freight on them. It, be, it becomes a lot. Right, and so we're spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, what are what are the in year one, what are the things that we can tackle as an event on the event side uh, to make sure that you know, ten years from now, this isn't a disaster. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I want to talk about the economic impact a sure. little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the two hour forty minutes, you're gonna have to be as efficient as uh, For Rihanna's sure. Super Bowl show. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but should we see the video? Should we yeah, click onto the, the video? Video's fun. Yeah, yeah let's for do folks, the video is fun. Yeah, for folks who haven't seen it, it'll give you a feel uh, for what we're building. Thanks, Maria. Maybe a little bigger. It's time for Formula <laughs> One.
deserves a couple of claps. Thank you for bringing a night race to America so that I can get on a Spirit Airlines flight from here. Of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, so let's talk a little bit about economic impact, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, we've made a really strong comeback post, I would say, COVID. Entire F1 as an ecosystem, COVID, of course, was a hard year. And it's gone, the race promotions, which is basically physical race revenue that F1 gets from their promoters. And for folks who didn't know, F1, the organization with Liberty, is actually the promoter for the Las Vegas race. So F1 owns the Las Vegas race, which is the only race they uh, fully own. That's right. Right. And so we've gone from almost like 13% of your race promotions fees in 2020, of course, it's an off year. It's not the right number to be comparing to, to uh, 29% in 2022, which is almost like 6x number of races got added. It's, I would still say it's like almost a 3x up from when people were last going to the race fully. 2019, 4.19 million people went to all the races in the world. 5.87 million, which is like a 20% up since that happened. Uh, so people are coming definitely more to the races. And Vegas is supposed to be, what, 1.1, $1.3 billion worth yeah, of spending? Yeah, yeah. so um, what the way that I typically explain this is in reference to the Super Bowl, because that's, I think, what most people here in the U.S. Um, have as a point of reference, right? So it just so happens that the Super Bowl is coming to Las Vegas six months behind our first race, which is great for the city. Um, so our race will happen in November, and then in February, Super Bowl number, whichever. Um, there's in a... I, <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> there's a... Um, there's an economic analysis firm that uh, can basically look at our event and then spit out what they think the overall economic impact back to the city will be uh, as a result of us coming to Vegas. And so, um, yes, their projection is about $1.2 billion for year one of our event, which is astounding. Um, and, and, and again, as a point of reference, the same firm ran an analysis of what the Super Bowl will bring to Vegas six months behind us. They're at about $495 million. Significant difference. Um, what we're trying to do, and this again goes back to storytelling, is to get folks locally to understand what that means. Right. right? This isn't a town that's had a World Cup before. This isn't a town that's seen the Olympics before. And so we're very, very much new and different. Um, I always tell this story that I, so I, I packed up my New York City apartment and moved to Vegas for this opportunity. And maybe my first or second week in Vegas, I went to some networking thing and um, a woman asked me, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm working on the F1 race. I work for Formula One. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry, right? And this is like, um, she's, a, she's not an elected official, but she's kind of an elected official in the town. And I'm like, sorry for what? Things are great, you know? And she's like, yeah, um, Formula One, I heard there was a shortage. Right? And I'm like, what is this woman talking about? She thought I worked for a baby formula company. Uh, and I would say, I would say that's like 70% of Nevada right now. Um, just has no clue what we're there to do. Right? And so um, a big part of my job is working together with local agencies to say, you know, here's the projection, but how do we make sure that folks who live in Vegas 365 days a year really feel that impact? And that's where things like jobs come in. That's where things like investment in educational programs comes in. May, may I jump in? Yeah. I, I, did they outline where they thought the difference in the Super Bowl economic impact yeah, versus yeah. what? I mean, that's a significant a difference. I understand that question. Super Bowl, it's a fixed stadium, fixed number of seats, only so many people, one-day event versus three-day event outside more people. But yeah. is, it, is it that simple? So to be fair to the Super Bowl, um, <laughs> a big part of our year one, $1.2 billion number, a big chunk of that is construction that we're doing on our paddock facility. Of course, right. There's a slide for that if you, if you want to. I think it's forward and not back. Um, keep going, keep going. More, more, more. Uh, so, so that construction piece makes a big, big difference. Um, 
The other difference maker is the amount of international travelers that will come to Vegas for this event versus what you would typically see at a Super Bowl, right? And for Vegas, the international traveler is important because they stay longer, which means they spend more money, right? So it's just a little bit of a different profile from an event standpoint. Again, if you put us side by side with maybe the Olympics or the World Cup, you start to see some similarities. But for, for a domestic sport like American football, there's, there's a little bit of a gap. So you said earlier that there were 55 or 60 people in the core Vegas team. Yeah. How many yeah. jobs are we expecting that this is going to uh, Roughly 4,800. Okay. A lot of those are day workers. A lot of those are temporary staff. Um, but a good, good number of them uh, are going to be focused on safety, of course. And so when we think about Las Vegas, um, you might all be aware that there's been a mass shooting in Vegas in the past eight years at our circuit, right out of the windows of Mandalay Bay. Um, and so a real, real, real big opportunity for folks in the town is to really have them wrap around how we make this as safe as it can possibly be. Um, and a part of that is us working actually with Department of Homeland Security to see what federal resources we can pull off the shelf to, to make sure we'll be okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And for folks who didn't know, uh, Pilar just came back from having that discussion at Capitol Hill recently. Yeah. Uh, but economic impact, before we move to more sustainability and community stuff. Philip, you and I were talking about how OEMs decide to invest in sport and what the paybacks and the ROI from opportunities like this is. And you advise a lot of OEMs behind the scenes. So tell us a little bit more about what goes on there. <laughs> That's a very <laughs> tricky question, a very loaded question on top of that. All right, I'm, don't quote me on this, right? So um, I would say, look, um, obviously a lot of the OEMs that have sort of a, um, an F1 team, but then also regular race or regular cars on the road. There's a big benefit, and we talked about some of the technology that is being developed in F1, and then later finds its way into real life vehicles. And there's a real benefit of that. And we talked about some of the technologies, but also sort of the, the artificial intelligence that we talked about. Yeah, so for example, the stuff that we were doing with Quantum Black in F1 that ultimately got translated into you know, improvement of quality of vehicles, right? How do you detect failures of vehicles much earlier using machine learning and predicting failures and then you know, being able to pull out the vehicles quicker out of sort of making a recall and repairing them? So that's where sort of a lot of this technology gets, um, gets applied. Now, at the end of the day, like most of these things, it is basically impossible to really run the business case. Uh, so it comes down to a bit of a leap of faith. It's like, you know, when, you, when you're a major brand and you brand that stadium like your company, how many more insurances are you going to sell because of that? That is a very, very tough calculation to make. So if you're sort of an OEM and you have an F1 team, how many passenger cars more are you going to sell because of that? So that is one where it's really hard to quantify, and it, it comes down to a leap of faith. And to be honest, uh, at least the, the OEMs that I've worked with, um, it, it is really the excitement of the management team. It's of if you have a CEO, if you have an executive team that is truly passionate about the sport, they will find a way to make it happen. And then, uh, you know, if a new CEO comes in and he's not as excited, that's when you see some of the teams drop out. I think another thing that, uh, that big companies, and, and not just OEMs, but, you know, big sponsors as well, because the same, the same philosophy applies. It's really hard to say I sold X more number of widgets because I sponsor this team. It's also the, the B2B connections that you get, right? So you know the old saying, business gets done on the golf course? Well, a lot of business gets done at the racetrack. So a, lo a lot of what these companies are doing, whether it's OEMs or, or sponsors, they host clients, customers, you know, pipeline, and you can get deals done because it's a cool, different way. Everyone does a golf tournament, right? And golf's boring. And so you bring them out to a race, and you show them something new and something different. It's just that cool new environment. You get you, to, it's, you spend three days together, not just maybe four hours on a, on a golf course. And a lot of business gets done. So 
it might not just be uh, for uh, you know B2C and, and consumer products, forward-facing products like that, but a lot of that behind-the-scenes stuff and a lot of the benefit these companies are seeing is from networking at the tracks and, and getting deals done in some of those, those hospitality situations. I think that B2B piece is so important. I mean, we often say to each other on our team that the paddock has got to be the best forum for B2B deal-making in the world, easily. Um, and what's interesting for us from, from a city standpoint, right, is we have um, the, the mayor, the commissioners, and even the, the state governor um, looking at us and saying, through this platform that you're creating, how do we actually leverage that to get more businesses interested in coming to Vegas and setting up shop, right? So it's that kind of like that networking effect that I find really exciting. So a lot of what I'm hearing is very qualitative to figure out what the benefit is. But I think something, if people listen to the Formula One Beyond the Grid podcast, Lauren Rossi, uh, just the CEO of Alpine, just put out uh, some stats behind it, that Alpine, the 110, the car, that's the only product that they have. As a part of rebranding the team a couple of years ago from Renault to Alpine, their car sales have gone up 3x. And this is not a new car. It's been around for eight to nine years. It's uh, remake of an old car so there's quantitative numbers but it's so hard unless you have that like one model to track it and I think we've heard numbers of Mercedes sales AMG side specifically going up I haven't been able to track down an actual number on that so I I read a really interesting article in um, I think it was like F1 business or something like that and you know the one manufacturer in Formula One that's not actually a car manufacturer is Red Bull and Red Bull released some numbers that were absolutely fascinating. So, you know, Max Verstappen won the championship in 2021. And in that year, uh, Red Bull saw their global sales go from something like 8 billion cans to 10 billion cans. Uh, you know, you got to think in the energy drink market, they already have such a massive market share. That kind of jump for a company like that is unheard of. They had no increase in marketing spend. There was no discernible, identifiable campaign that did this. They basically looked at it at the end of the day. They're like, damn, this is because Max won the F1 World Championship. And he was rewarded with a very healthy contract as a result of that. <laughs> but it's, it, it, you know, it's, you can't count it. But at the same time, you took a company. It's a consumer product. They did nothing different from the year prior except their driver won the F1 World Championship in one of the most exciting years that the series has ever seen a 20-something percent increase in sales on an already very, you know, heavy market-shared company. So it it works. Well, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. We haven't talked about this before. Uh, You used to be a driver in 2021 last for Andretti Autosport. Yes. Andretti's well-publicized bid. Yes. F1 with General Motors. Oh, no. Give us your thoughts. Look, I, I think it's great. So for those that don't know, you know, Michael Andretti from the legacy dynasty racing family, the Andrettis, um, he owns an IndyCar team. He owns a sports car team. They have a V8 supercars team. They ha- they've got teams in almost everything. And their goal is to have a team in every top-level motorsports on earth. They have a Formula E team, an Extreme E team. Um, they don't have a NASCAR team yet, and they don't have a Formula One team yet. They've been campaigning very hard to break into the F1 grid. Uh, Formula One, per the, the contract that sort of runs the, uh, the entire series, does allow for 12 teams on the grid, 24 cars. There's currently 10 teams and 20 cars, so there are technically two openings. There are a lot of barriers now to a team getting uh, added to the grid. They are having to go through a lot of uh, due diligence and, and a lot of hurdles, but regardless of all that, my personal opinion is Absolutely. The more competition, the better. Uh, obviously, the sport has taken off in the United States. Having a American-based team with an American legacy driver at the helm. His father was Mario Andretti, who won the Formula One World Championship back in the 70s. Uh, it, it makes total sense. They've got a tie-in with General Motors, so it's another huge um, OEM that's going to be taking part uh, using the Cadillac brand. It'd be silly for it to not happen. There are a lot of politics behind it, and there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes, but my hope is for sure that they're able to pull it off because it'd be great to see more cars, more competition, bigger North American influence. I think it'd be great. Yeah. Oh, so 11th F1 team on the grid. Let's just count. Fingers crossed. 2025. Yeah. Uh, so I want to pivot now to a little bit on the cultural, infrastructure, uh, cultural storytelling, and I know we've got some limited time, and we'll get through this. I want to talk to you, Pilar, specifically about being somebody, you and I both didn't grow up in motorsports families. 
uh, and especially were women, women of color, were not very represented in the space. So tell us into your journey into motorsports first and how the cultural impact post-drive to survive is being changed from inside the sport in Vegas specifically, which is a very female organization, on specifically changing this image from a billionaire's men, white men sport. How is that gonna change? Yeah, what a big question. Um, My personal journey, so I previously worked at an advocacy organization um, called Global Citizens. Some of you might have heard of them. They do big charity music festivals all over the world. Um, And while I was at Global Citizen, um, we were connected with Formula One. This was the summer of 2020, summer of George Floyd. Um, And there was an opportunity for us to partner together on the We Races One initiative. Um, When I met Formula One and the team working uh, on the race promotion side, it was all women, which for me is amazing. I I really didn't have, you know, an entrance into the F1 world through the eyes of the old boys club, right? So I think my experience has been a little bit unique. Um, uh, When I got the WhatsApp last March about the opportunity to come to Vegas, um, it was from a woman who's now our chief commercial officer. Uh, And she said, our CEO is also a woman who's incredible at what she does. Um, I'm on now the most diverse team I've ever been on. Um, That's in terms of age, race, ethnicity, nationality, and gender. Um, And I'm having the time of my life. However, I do recognize, though, that we're not that far off from a time where there won't be a single black driver on the grid. Right? And I do think a lot about, it makes me emotional, but I think a lot about what that will mean for black and brown kids all over the world, right, who will not see themselves reflected. And so I think there's a ton of work to be done, but I'm excited because I think what has happened with Drive to Survive, and is certainly a huge part of the reason why there is a Vegas race, but what has happened is you now have all these new voices that get to be a part of this legacy thing, right? And there are growing pains for sure. I mean, I scroll the F1 Reddit probably way more often than I should, and... (laughs) I would say anytime Vegas is mentioned, you have the lifelong fan that goes, you guys are running the sport into the ground. Shame on you, right? And all I see is opportunity. Um, so, so I'm really, really excited because I think the more new voices that you have in and around Formula One, um, the bigger and better it becomes. It's just interesting sitting in it in real time while that's happening. Yeah. Maybe actually a question to you too. I mean, I'm- I'm taking over here. <laughs> no, but you, you talked about the drivers, right, and diversity, and immediately sort of the mind goes uh, towards also women drivers, right? And we've seen other sport. Yeah. <laughs> All right, at least one person here is also ex- equally excited. Um, we've seen other racing sports where women have been very successful, right? I think it was Jutta Kleinschmidt in 2001 that won the Paris-Dakar and then Christina uh, Gutierrez in 2018 or so, right? So clearly women can be very successful in racing. Um, and then uh, some people know there's like this racing championship called Extreme E, uh, where they race SUVs, electric SUVs, and they have a rule that every team needs to consist of a man driver and a woman driver, and they have to share 50% of the driving activity. Um, so maybe a provocative question, why don't we have like teams where we have one man and one woman driving in F1? What do you guys think? Well, F1's inherently different in that there's only one driver per car, uh, if you mean each team has yeah. to be. Um, so... That is a very difficult question to answer. Um, I think ultimately F1's about performance. I think uh, as soon as a, uh, a young woman comes through the development ladder that competes wheel to wheel and 10th to 10th with any male counterpart, I think that opportunity is there. Um, commercially, you know, I don't know if people would agree with this, I think commercially uh, a young female driver actually has some advantages over a young male driver in a lot of ways because they do stand out. It's the only sport on earth where we compete at, in the same league. Um, that opens up some huge opportunities. But I look, you know, I look back at like, you know, I had some personal experience with Dan Kapatrick. I got to race against her. Um, her marketability and, and commercial viability was tenfold. Every other male driver on the grid. Um, so for a young female right now, it's actually, I think, a great time to be, if you're interested in motorsports, trying to get into it. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, F1's about performance. You got to prove it doesn't matter what what gender you are, what race you are, whatever, the fastest drivers get those seats, and that's, that's what makes Formula One Formula One. Um, you see a lot of uh, other series like sports car racing where there are uh, multiple drivers per car. There's a lot of uh, female drivers in the IMSA championship right now and WEC, things like that. Um, I know they had the W Series recently to try to help find that next female driver that maybe in Europe could get through the, the single-seater ranks. It's coming. So so many fewer females get into it at the go-karting, at the grassroots level, right? You, you look at the pyramid of how many people sit in a go-kart before the age of 12, right? And then how many of those make it to Formula One? I mean, we're talking about fractions of fractions of 1%. And when you look at that broad base in go-karting, fractions and fractions of 1% are female to begin with. So we just need to really, I think, encourage it at the grass, grassroots level, get more young girls interested in go-karting. And I think, you know, things like Drive to Survive, things like leaning on, you know, people like Danica Patrick or going back to the Lynn St. James's and, and, and uh, Uta Kleinschmitz and other successful female Susie drivers. Wolf. Su- Susie Wolf. Um, I, think, I think it all starts at the bottom. I think maybe we're putting a little bit too much focus too high up right now. We need to breed this talent from a young age. Like someone like Lewis Hamilton, he was noticed at 11. It was 11 in a go-kart. Someone from Mercedes slash McLaren was like, hey, that kid's pretty good. And that's how his career started. So I think we just need to see a bigger uh, representation of females at the, at the entry level, grassroots level of the sport. And then, yeah, it takes time, but they can get there. So what I'm hearing about is it's basically a pipeline issue. I, I, I believe so. Yeah, pipeline issue. And just because it's a lot more competitive in general, that's filtering out, and we're not seeing a lot of them just bubble up to F1. Yeah, I mean, you, you could also you could look at it, you know, geographically too. You could say, why are there no F1 drivers from Texas? I don't know. There's not one. A, from, there's one from Florida. There's now. one from Florida now, but uh-huh. like you, you, you say, there, there's not as many. There are hot spots for racing, right? Places where it's been traditionally very popular. Uh, where the, the grassroots level is, is much more prevalent. And so I think that's really, that's really where it comes from, is you have to just get it more females focused in, a, in an entry-level position, and then eventually that, that filters its way through. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, we do want to leave five minutes for Q&A, but I have two more questions uh, before we end up. So we were talking about representation a li- little bit, right? So you're, you're working in one of the most diverse teams, how does that representation show up more, just not because of the drivers, but women in the workplace and across the Formula One organization? How does that visibility transfer over? Because I think one of the blogs did a, uh, some counting on like Drive to Survive, and I think only 1.5% of the airtime was what women got. 1.7. 1.7% t- of the time. Yeah. How? Do we think we can change that a little bit? Yeah, look, I think uh, cultural change takes time, right? Um, yes, I am on one of the most diverse teams I've ever yeah. been on, have the benefit of being surrounded by kick-ass female leaders. We're not going to fix it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, but we can start by being honest, and I think that statistic that you shared, yeah. I heard that number too. Yeah. So if you didn't catch that, for season five? Season five. Of Drive to Survive, of all the airtime, 1.7% of it features women. And I think it added up all the five seasons' time, actually. It's all, it's all yeah, five all seasons. seasons together. It's pretty low. Um, it's not just a pipeline problem, right? But I think it's a culture thing, too, it's, that it's we work at every unconscious day. unconscious bias, right? Nobody's it's thinking a lot of about unconscious bias. including that female executive because it's all... Even if she's the one making all the decisions, yep. she's not as exciting as... You know, maybe the next because no. Ted Kravitz, who's one of the uh, commentators on Sky Sports F1, he's mentioned multiple times Sophie Og from McLaren, who spent time at Williams, is one of the best PR people in the game. We saw a little bit of her in season five, but we've not heard her speak to the yeah. screen. So we're not hearing those stories yeah. either. Yeah, but I think, that, I think that'll start to change. I do. I feel really optimistic about it. That's, and we hope so. Uh, and you're the one uh, in the seat to make the most of the change and like funnel off to Stefano. We're doing what we can. Yeah. Uh, so last, I think about being good social citizens, right? Yeah. We have to talk about community impact, sure. which sports happens. Miami was a big part in doing STEM for Afri- African-American uh, neighborhoods. Now let's talk Las Vegas. Yeah. I know there's some exciting stuff that Las Vegas is doing with the community in terms of 
developing talent. Can we talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot that we're doing to kind of give back to the community that's embraced us already. Um, one of our biggest efforts so far has been around hunger relief. So Vegas is one of those cities where there's a ton of excess food and, and uh, a rate of folks who are food insecure that's rising faster than the national average. So how do you have both those things happening at the same time? It shouldn't be that way. Um, so we launched a campaign back in August uh, to make sure that we could do our part to kind of close some of those meal gaps. Uh, we set a goal to give away a million meals. Um, the team told me it would take us 10 years to raise the money, and it took us about 26 hours, which is incredible. Um, and so, you know, we'll continue calls to action like that, where we're looking and seeing where there's real critical need uh, based on the reality of Las Vegas. We're talking about a town where there are mostly low-wage hospitality workers. We're talking about one of the poorest performing school districts in the country. Right, and so we have our work cut out for us. Um, on the education side, one of the things we're excited about is we're working with the university, um, with UNLV, to put together a, in a, what we're calling a hospitality academy. Um, and it's our way of working with local students who are in the hospitality school at the university and bringing them the best of F1 food and beverage experience. And so it's going to be something for them that they won't be able to get anywhere else. And we're hoping that it's a program that we can grow and expand to other markets when the time is right. Um, so it'll be programs and projects like that that we're kind of testing in year one and then seeing where there's ultimately more impact you know, for the, for the years to come. That makes a lot of sense. Very similar to the F1 in schools initiative that happens yeah. all over the world. So thank you to all of you for taking the time. To close it out, you can also line up for questions if you have any at this moment. But what one thing, five seconds, 10 seconds, gets you most excited about the future of F1, each of you? I start? Okay. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by sort of the technology advancements. I still want to see sort of there's much more to come, much that we haven't seen yet, but, but I know it's in preparation. I think the, the role of artificial intelligence in F1 is going to increase for sure. So I'm pretty excited about that sort of at the combination with the human and the human driver. And I'm certainly very interested and excited to see who's going to win Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. Second to last race of the season. It'll be good. Uh, five seconds, what I'm most excited about. I'm excited that there are new Formula One fans like me who get to go on this journey, especially as an adult. You only get so many firsts. Uh, so that's, that's been really special for me. I'm excited about it. Honestly, kind of a combination of the both. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big technology nerd. I love seeing how it develops. I love that it's growing. Um, but for me, the, the rule changes to make the really focus on the, the product of the racing. Yeah. Um, that's something that F1 took too long to jump on board with. When you compare it to other four-wheeled circuit motorsports, the product was pretty boring for a long time, and they're really figuring that out now, and now the races are getting a lot better, and that's what I'm, as a race fan, I'm excited about. For me, I think it's community. Uh, I am a creative stuck in a nerd's body, and I have had, found my community when I found Formula One. I've got friends here who've flown from all over the country to come support. And uh, shout out to them. These are people who have found, who understand who I am at the core. And I've heard so many stories from women, especially about the narrative of women can't like cars. It has to be because the drivers, and I've been told by people at work this, you can't like cars. I absolutely can like cars because I started working on diesel engine plant floors. And so I think being able to find this combination of people that you don't have to be just a single identity. You can be multi-hyphenate. You can be somebody who appreciates uh, pop culture with the nerd aspect of it. And we're getting to see a lot more female fans who are embracing that narrative. So I do think that's a very important conversation changer that's going to happen over the next couple of years. So that's what I get more excited about. And thank you for everybody who came today. And we'll open up to questions. Is, is it, it on? Yeah. Is it on? Uh, so thank you for the panel. It was great. Uh, one thing that I was thinking about was when the topic was about e-fuels, a lot was talked about e-gas, but a problem that I would see in that is that you get the hydrogen out and then you get water in the end, right? And then you just like sucking hydrogen and getting water, so you have to like convert the water back into hydrogen or you're like decreasing the oxygen, right? So long term, it will be a problem. 
So how do you see this in relation to other liquid e-fuels like hydrogen, for example, which you do like, you'd get hydrogen and then you'd get water and you'd spill out a, at the end as well, so it'd be like a little bit better. Like, is it like that worse to make the cars do with hydrogen? Uh, yep, that's it. Maybe, maybe I take this from, from the automotive perspective, right? Sort of because we constantly have the debate also, you know, should we have hydrogen cars or electric cars or e-fuels kind of in this balance, right? Um, at the end of the day, I think on the hydrogen side, it might be easier sort of on, a, on an F1 track or so where it's sort of a very confined area, we can deal with it. But on the open roads for past cars, the big problem is basically the, the, the infrastructure that you need for hydrogen, right? Sort of to transport hydrogen, it's very, very difficult. You need new fueling stations for hydrogen that are very expensive. Um, and then at the end of the day, when you compare it to electric vehicles, the, the beauty about electric vehicles for a lot of people is that you can charge them at home. Um, just like your phone, you treat it like your phone. You use it during the day and you charge it at nighttime and then you use it again. And once you've gotten used to that and the convenience of it, um, it's like somebody had to do, would tell you, hey, to charge your phone, you have to leave your house and you have to go somewhere else. People won't do that anymore. I think once you're sort of used to that convenience, you know, you want to have that. So um, I think hydrogen for past cars in the US, I don't see that happening in F1, you know, I mean, we can have a debate. Um, maybe the only area where I really see a, a, a use of hydrogen uh, on the road is maybe heavy-duty trucks, where electric vehicle is not an option. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I don't think we'll see it in F1 for that very reason. You know, we discussed how F1's a test bed for automotive technology. I agree it's, you know, it's too cost prohibitive to make it, uh, you know, realistic for road cars. So I don't, because of that, I don't think we'll see it in F1. Maybe there'll be a different series that does it the way that Formula E has done for electric or racing. Air speeder for EV tall stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. Right. So it would be cheaper to like get the water and then produce the hydrogen back than yep. to get the infrastructure. Yep. Thank you. Hi. Uh, thank you for this panel. It's been really interesting. I'm surprised to see this many people. <laughs> We're surprised too. <laughs> thank you for coming. Uh, I've been a fan of Formula One for 20 years or more. Um, I guess my question is about the sound, which is kind of, kind of weird. Um, in the days of the V12s and all of that, the sound was, used to be you know, like you could hear it for miles, and and it was it was amazing to experience. That has been changing. I was at Miami last year, and it was not as you know it would, didn't make you vibrate like it used to be. So I don't know if, if there are there any plans of adding artificial sound because you know. All <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, you can talk you about can. it from your car. <laughs> um, I. Thank you for the question. Uh, I agree with you. Um, the, I think the short answer is, is no. I, I think F1 tries to be very authentic, and creating an artificial sound is maybe not something that they want to do. When the hybrid technology first came out in 2014, that was a huge complaint amongst fans. There was a rule change that changed uh, something in the exhaust system to make the sound a little bit louder, a little bit more aggressive. Um, I think the only hope that, that you and I and, and, and like-minded people have is if this sort of sustainable fuels um, project continues and grows as it becomes more relevant in road cars, maybe hybrid technology isn't as important for OEMs and at some point there's a shift where, hey, if we're not just burning fossil fuels for fun, we can go back to V8s, we can go back to V10s and have something that'll create that sound. It's not gonna be in the near future, maybe at some point. But, um, but yeah, I'm with you. It's, it, it's a sound I miss as well. Here's a perspective I'll offer up. So you were at the Miami Grand Prix, right? Um, a part of bringing that to life as, as a Grand Prix was having conversations with folks who live in Miami Gardens year-round, right, and who were quite concerned about noise pollution. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's important to think about it from that standpoint too, right? What does it mean for folks who, who are just living nearby and have didn't ask for a race to be in their backyard it, it's easy for me to say i don't know the difference right uh but but i think about it from that no, perspective. You, you like indycar you still need to put 
earplugs in. in. F1, you don't anymore. No. That's the difference. No. It's like very discernible. Yeah. But I have a question back to you. Uh, which, which one is your favorite team? <laughs> Sergio Perez, Jacko, <laughs> in Vegas. It's, it's going to be, it's kind of scary to see all the things you're doing. It's exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for the panel. Really good discussion. Uh, as, as Formula One is kind of, as I'll say, the tip of the spear and, and it's very international in its, in its space, what would be your advice to other series? You mentioned WEC or, or IMSA that, that have similar, similar stories. You look at the new GTP class and the hybrid technology there to promote that story and, and, and get that out to the public and create more motorsport fans. Netflix. Real, reality TV. <laughs> hey, we can talk about you get and the new show. IndyCar. Yeah, so I mean, the, the drive to survive factor certainly cannot be ignored. I mean, what it's done for Formula One uh, globally, certainly, but I think ex especially you know in North America has been just mind, mind blowing. Uh, IndyCar is currently producing a, a similar concept, 100 Days to Indy. Uh, it's going to debut late April. Um, there are there, actually a, a friend of mine is working on something similar for IMSA and WEC. Um, he, he already produced a movie called The Gentleman Driver, which was kind of fascinating. Tells a little bit about the story on how some of the economics and sports car racing works with these business people by Monday to Thursday and, and amateur racing drivers Friday through Sunday. But that, that's just it. You know, I think the manufacturers and sports cars, they do a good job of trying to tell those stories. Again, that's a very relevant series for them. That's part of why they're involved. Uh, the GTP thing was really exciting. And look, Daytona 24 this year was the best attendance they've ever had. And I, I credit a lot of that to the fact there was a lot of buzz around these new cars. Um, but you can only do so much without just being able to get into like the zeitgeist through something like a, a show like Drive to Survive. Something I'll add to that is also thinking about the ROI, right? It depends on how much race revenue they're bringing, right? So you're not going to spend Netflix-esque money on something to want to get that immediate impact. Like, what's the impact? So it's going to be commensurate. I know from conversations I've had in the industry, a lot of teams that are in F1 and they have the sports car side, they're starting to look into how they can do content storytelling. Maybe it's on social media, uh, maybe create smaller documentaries around it. And it's not gonna get you Drive to Survive-esque number of people, but it'll still get you a more steady state of people. So the sports storytelling, which is now outside the performance that telling the story about the ecosystem is becoming important, not just in, we've seen full swing, break point. We're seeing the surf league that was seen by the Drive to Survive producer that premiered here. Uh, those stories are coming, and I think that's going to be another way for people to understand sports that haven't necessarily been a part of that sport, like in families like ours where we didn't grow up in it. So it's coming, smaller scale maybe. Tell your friends. Hi, thank you so much for the panel. Um, my question is specifically for Filar. Um, thank you for coming to Austin. Um, I was wondering how you're finding the balance between the still growing um, domestic audience for F1 and being um, one of the more expensive experiences on the calendar this year. Oh, my favorite question. <laughs> um, that's a real question. Um, when I am in the grocery store and if I'm wearing my Las Vegas Grand Prix hoodie, inevitably someone will approach me and say, shame on you, your tickets are too expensive, right? I just, I get it everywhere I go. Um, you know, the reality is we have very little ticket inventory. We're a street race, there are only so many seats, right? But I would say um, the way we're thinking about it as a business is it's the reason why we double down on the community side. It's the reason why we'll be heavily invested in the sustainability piece, especially around water conservation because it's, it's about the long tail, right? So 10 years from now, it's less important to me that everyone in Vegas went to the Grand Prix. I care more that everyone in Vegas has enough to eat and access to healthcare and enough teachers in the public schools, right? And so um, that's, that's, that's my way of sleeping at night, but it is tough, it's tough. Thank you. That's a great answer, by the way. Thank you. I love that. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for the panel. This was an awesome conversation. So my question's around the push for young women and young girls in the motorsport space and bringing them up through this pipeline that's trying to be established. There's all this work being done at a grassroots level and the young age level, but in any of your opinion, what should we be doing or what should be done for career-aged women or women that are already established in spaces that have transferable knowledge or transferable skills looking to make the step over to motorsports in any, any facet because it seems like there's a rung missing where you have the young women, and then you have where the industry wants to be or getting them into the industry, but then there's a gap with career-age women or 
older age women that are looking to get to those spaces. So I can speak from the race team side, certainly. I know uh, in IndyCar, there are a few different teams that have uh, initiatives for that very purpose. Um, you know, granted, a lot of it comes from STEM, right? We're seeing a lot more female engineers, uh, data engineers, race engineers. We are seeing more female mechanics. Um, you know, I think there's culturally something missing in the sense that more young guys want to work on their cars than young girls want to work on their cars. So from the mechanical side, we don't see quite as much. But certainly from the engineering side, we're seeing a lot more. And there are programs in place to try to identify, you know, promising female talent and bring them into the sport. Um, but honestly, I think that racing is done for what is traditionally been a, a like completely male-dominated sport. It's it's making some pretty big strides in uh, in a lot of lot of positions, and I think if you are you know a, like I say a, a career woman with experience uh, that's transferable to motorsports, send in your resume. There 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 are just uh, there are a lot of opportunities. I know certainly on the IndyCar side of things, we've got a human we got a human shortage. We have a people shortage in IndyCar. IndyCar's grown so much. Twenty seven full time cars this year. Um, we don't have enough anything, and that's everything from truck drivers, marketing people, PR people, engineers, mechanics, it doesn't matter. Um, IndyCar, if, if, if racing's your, your, your interest, uh, there are a lot of commercial opportunities, engineering opportunities, et cetera. Just send it in, because I think the industry is, is lacking right now. James is collecting resumes outside the door. 100%, <laughs> yeah. 100%. Cliff recruiting services coming to a city near you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tom. Thank you for the panel. Um, I work in sim racing, and something I noticed on one of your slides was that the average age of a fan is 40. That seems really high. Like Formula One is fast, um, it's exciting, it's, it's noisy, it's loud. Sure. It's not golf. Um, so it, seem, it seems odd to me that it... <laughs> Last question. Yes, we'll cut it. Yeah. It seems odd to me that that average age is so high. Now, F1 obviously has the game, which I think brings the average age down. You get a lot of younger people interacting with the sport that way and obviously we had Netflix which I think will also bring the average age of a fan down but the crux of my question was kind of taken so I'm going to rephrase yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like to really become a fan you have to touch it, feel it, be there, right? And I think maybe the reason that people in their late teens and 20s can't go is because of the cost. So I suppose my question to you Pilar is what initiatives and ideas are you working on at the track just to bring the average age of a fan down? Yeah, great question. So um, the average age of the fan, if you put it side by side with the average age of the big three American sports fans, that's super low. I think the average NFL fan is 55 years old. So we have to remember, average is everybody, right? Um, not just the people we follow and who follow us, it's all of it. Um, what we're thinking about in terms of exposure and giving people access is we have this huge paddock facility that's going to be sitting there 365 days a year. That's a great opportunity for us to be able to create something. We don't know what yet. Let's talk in a year and see what we've come up with, but to create something that has that our doors are open feel because we recognize that if, you, if, if the $500 three-day ticket is still out of reach for you, we, we still want for you to be involved and, and feel a little bit of the magic. I would say, though, that there are fans, we know that now there are fans who are getting into the sport without having ever been to a race, right? Are you one of them? Yeah. Yeah, I fell in love with F1 through the game, right. but I've never been to a race yet. Right. Um, and so I think it's also important for us as we think about communities that are popping up, whether you've been to an event or not, you're, you're still a fan. It still matters to you. You'll still watch it on broadcast, which is the way most people consume it. Right, and, and what I tend to remind folks of, especially on the ground in Vegas, is to go to a Grand Prix is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Some of us are so fortunate that we've seen it more than once, but it's not an every Sunday kind of, kind of thing, right? So I think there's a little bit um, of a shift in the mind of the consumer, um, but we certainly want to make it as accessible as we can. Thank you so much. We do have to exit the room. Thank you for coming. Thank you, everyone. This All right, thanks so much. Thank you, Pilar. Thank you. Thank you.